I wonder, Christian, would others in this church say that you are a particularly loving person? And I don't mean loving others in the church in the way that you think they should be loved. I mean loving others in the church the way Jesus says they ought to be loved. The way that Jesus wants them to be loved. After all, Jesus is the one Christians take our cues from, right? As He is our Lord. Christ the, as Christ the King is love. As He is the example of love. As He is the one who calls us to love. So we are to love and take our cues from Him. And in loving others as He loves, the church fulfills its mission of being, as some have said in the past, embassies of heaven, right? Local embassies of God's heavenly kingdom as we represent our glorious King in all that He is. It's a pretty compelling vision, isn't it? At least I find it to be. The last time I preached, we mentioned that the church that I grew up in was something of a safe harbor for me. Given the difficulty out there, I found actually the church that I grew up in to be something of a safe harbor. It was an embassy of God's heavenly kingdom represented to me. And so I found the godly in the church to be a huge encouragement to me. And there I'm thinking of the former senior pastor who was my discipler. He was and others were an extension of God's love. And I was a recipient of God's love through him, through Pastor William Ng. Through the church, you know, or though the church certainly had our own struggles, and I contributed to some of those struggles, by God's grace, we were doing better than the world, right? And in that in and of itself is a really good thing. Well, friends, this morning we continue to look at what it means to be a loving church. In our previous message in 1 Peter, I invite you to turn to the book with me now. In our previous message in 1 Peter, we looked at the fact that Christ calls His people to be loving, right? Be God's loving people in here, given the difficulties and the persecution out there. And from our passage this morning, we see that, that a loving church is to be a longing church. That's our big idea if you're taking notes today. A loving church is to be a longing church. Well, what are we to long after? Our pastor today speaks of these things, two things, two points. Number one, it longs to put away sin. And then number two, it longs for the Word of God. A loving church is a longing church. That's our big idea. In two different ways, we long. We should long to put away sin and then long for the Word of God. So again, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, and I'll go ahead and read. Um, although our passage is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, let's go ahead and look at 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll go ahead and start in verse 22. Go ahead and look there, and then we'll read through our passage today, which ends in 2-3. Peter says there in one twenty-two, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, this week, obviously, we continue in our series through First Peter. Next week, we do the same. The Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in various areas of modern-day Turkey who were, in fact, experiencing persecution for their faith. They were following Jesus, and they were experiencing hostilities from the world, and they're suffering, if you were to read through the letter, which I encourage you to do later on in the afternoon, for example. Their suffering included, at the very least, we read there, mockery for the faith, social ostracism because they didn't sin like the world around them, and then some Christians were even being beaten for their faith. And so Peter writes into that situation, holding out their true hope of salvation. 
regardless of what society was giving to them and regardless of the persecution under Nero that would eventually come, sort of empire-wide persecution, regardless of those things, they had a true and living hope in Christ their living Savior and all of the benefits that came through salvation in Jesus. Forgiveness of their sins, salvation of their souls, an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So whatever difficulty they might experience from the world, they knew or they were to know, and we are to know today, that our true King and Shepherd is protecting us now and all the way till the end. If you read First Peter, you see that the beginning of chapter 1 speaks of all of these blessings in Jesus Christ. And then in one thirteen, he begins to address how the Christians are to live within the church and then as we engage the world. So within the church and then as we engage the world. And as we walk through First Peter, we'll see how this gets played out here. But to set the stage here, um, you see there, as we read in First Peter there, that he's encouraging them to be God's loving people in here, given the difficulty out there. And he says that a loving church, as we look at today, is a longing church. Point number one, a, longing, a loving church longs to put away sin. A loving church longs to put away sin. You see this command right there. Peter states, so or therefore, he's picking up on what he just said. We are born again by this word of God. This word of God is what was preached to us. So therefore, put away or really rid yourselves of all of these sins here. You see deceit malice actually first deceit and hypocrisy envy and slander he's basically talking about all sin really but here these sins are the ones that really destroyed a loving community so he's clearly just saying be god's loving community here on earth now there is no indication in this particular letter that the christians were actually tempted to sin in these particular ways so we don't get that from this letter Um, but it's pretty clear as to why Peter would actually tell us as Christians to put away these sins in order to be a loving church, right? Christians are the people of God in this world by his grace. And frankly, in this, in his kingdom, these sins and other sins simply don't line up with who Christ is, his character, as well as his kingdom and the constitution or the charter of his kingdom. These things simply just, they, they don't fit. And so as we live for Christ, we and they were to put these things away, and instead, what, we, what are we to do? We are supposed to cultivate these family relationships that we get to experience here as we are bound together by the blood of Jesus and by Jesus' own spirit. So naturally, we're going to be putting these things away. We don't want to tear down these relationships. Instead, we want to build them up. And of course, the church is to be distinct from the world. And certainly, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, we are not saying that you practice malice and deceit and hypocrisy. I mean, we all do to some degree, but we're not saying that that's what marks you, right? We're, he's just saying, look, we, we ought to be distinct from the world. In general, the world, given the sin that's out in the world, practices these things in general, just as we formerly did and used to as well. But as God is building his people, we are, Peter says there, if you look there in 1, 15 and 16, we are to be holy as God is holy or set apart. So we as his people are to be set apart. And so in our holiness, even Christian, in your holiness, even in your love of God that drives your holiness, we represent the holiness and love of our savior. Just like an ambassador, for example, represents his or her country, so the Christian, so you Christian, and us as a church as Evergreen, we represent Christ and his kingdom to the entire watching world. Let me ask you, what good would the church be if we looked just like the world and acted just like the world? What good would we be? What would our testimony of Jesus Christ be if we freely practice these types of sins and other sins? Imagine, right? Let's just look at some biblical definitions here. You think about malice there. It could be evil in general or just ill will towards one another. You could think of deceit and hypocrisy. These are closely related, these two. I mean, just imagine the hypocrite who works so hard at making sure people think of her or him in a particular way, but really he does that in order to get what he wants. He's putting up a front in order to really get what he wants. He's a manipulator. She's a manipulator. Think of envy. Instead of wanting the best for others, you hope for their downfall to your own advancement. Think about slander. Think about any talk, any talk that seeks to maliciously belittle people in the eyes of others. 
Think about gossip that you've heard recently. What, would go, what good would our testimony be if the church looked just like the world? And friends, you know, for those of you who became Christians later on, or maybe you even grew up in the church, right? You know what this is like as you're evaluating the witness of any particular church. Maybe you're checking out a church, etc. Or maybe you've been a Christian and you're watching, you're observing and learning and drawing conclusions about who these Christians really are. Imagine, again, if the church was freely practicing these things and just simply looked like the world. They might look over there and say, what good is your Jesus if you Christians are living the same as those others in the world? What good is your king? Where is this power to save that you guys talk about that's found in the cross and in the resurrection if you guys are living in this sin? And then they might think, well, shoot, shoot, you know, your Jesus might, it doesn't seem to be a very compelling king. There's no power. There's no glory because you guys are clearly not doing what he wants to do. What he tells you to do, what he says. Again, it's not that we are to be perfect as Christians. That's impossible. That is impossible here in this world. We live in a fallen world, a sinful world. So non-Christians, again, if you're visiting, we still sin. And if you know us long enough, we're going to sin against you. But hopefully, given who Jesus is and given that we know the forgiveness of Jesus, we're actually going to be asking for your forgiveness. We're actually going to be wanting to repent of our sins and turn to Christ despite our sin. We're going to want to strive to honor Jesus and live for His holiness so that you might see a little bit more of who Jesus is. And yes, even though that picture and that display of God's glory, that projection of who Christ is in all of His beauty, though it might be dim, we hope that you guys would be realizing something this is a big reason why Jesus saves sinners, isn't it? It is so that His church, always in progress, always a work in progress, is to reflect more and more His glorious character and His power to save. We do this insofar as we reflect Christ's holiness. The world then would see more of Christ's holiness. Also His compassion, His mercy, His love, His justice, His righteousness. And so Christians clearly are to put these things away or put off. The language is closely related. You think of Paul the Apostle where he writes and tells the Christians to put off certain things, put off the old self since Jesus has already died on the cross for your sins. He's saved you and so you to put on the new man. And as Christians, those who have been regenerated or born again by the Spirit, we then can put on the new man, live in different ways than we used to, grow in doing these things. And so we are to put these sins away. Christians, we too are to put these things away. We are to destroy all things that destroy Christian love. We are to go against and put them away, all those things that mar the name of Jesus, these sins, and so much more. Now, let me just say, it's kind of hard on one hand to apply these things because I frankly just don't see it. It doesn't mean that they don't exist here. I just It's just hard for me to see it. Praise God for that, right? Praise God for that. It's not obvious. Certainly our sins and our hearts might move towards these things. So let me just take some liberties here. I don't think Paul is, or Peter is offering us an exhaustive list of the things we are to put away. He's just simply naming these things, these obvious ones that tear them down. So let me take some liberties here and expand the list and land on one in particular that I think captures the heart of what could lead us to these sins that are named, particularly slander. You can think of gossip, speaking ill about others, ill will. This issue here threatens every church's love and unity, and it could potentially lead to divisions in the church, which of course mars the name of Jesus. Here it is. I'm speaking to us Christians here. It is assuming the worst about someone. Assuming the worst about someone, right? When we assume the worst about someone, that's going to tear down Christian love and unity big time. That doesn't build up, right? To just simply assume you're cynical in all of your conversations. That actually isn't very, uh, it's not really a Christian mark to be cynical about what God is doing in the lives of other people. I mean, let's take some time to work through this situation so that we can strive to not think the worst about someone, but instead 
Seek to think charitably towards one another, loving towards one another, and give one another the benefit of the doubt. And let me just pick a ridiculous situation here that is certainly not happening in Evergreen, lest anybody feel bad and think that I am, you know, pointing somebody out here. Let's say the other pastors, led by Rocky, wanted to paint the inside and outside of this building hot pink. Now, again, this is a ridiculous situation, but I think it's going to make the point, okay? So just bear with me if you think I'm being ridiculous. Let's say that they wanted to paint the building inside and outside hot pink. And I, of course, cannot believe that these guys with rational minds as Christians, you know, who in their right mind would want to do that? You're probably thinking the exact same thing. And yet in the discussion, I find myself in the minority on sta- in staff meeting on Tuesdays and everybody else wants it. I could. I could get all up in arms and agitated and speak incredulously like I just did. Who in their right mind would do such a thing? I could conclude that they definitely do not love the church and they don't don't love me and they don't respect my opinion and they don't love the world because why would the world want to look at a hot pink building? I could not give them the benefit of the doubt. I could judge them and go ahead and gossip about them and slander them. What do you do in those situations? What do, you, what do we do in those situations where you just cannot believe that a Christian person would want to do such a thing? Here's what we can do as we move towards love in the midst of disagreement while seeking love and unity, right? First, you can think, is it a sin issue? Is it a sin issue? Meaning, is continuing in this action, displeasing to God according to His Word, such that if Mako and Ron and the others were to continue in that, it would mean by definition unfaithfulness to God. Is the person sinning against God in what they want and in carrying it out? Another helpful question to ask to determine if it is sin is based on the teachings of church discipline. Would the church discipline for such an action? I hope you guys all know the answer. You know, is it a disciplinable offense? Is it a sin issue to paint this building inside and outside hot pink? The answer is simply no, it is not. Okay, well, if it isn't a sin issue, as we have just concluded based on God's word, you know, we just said that, yeah, Ron could be faithful and still have those desires and still go ahead and do it. It is true. It is not a sin issue. Then you think, okay, well, what is it then? If it's not a sin issue, then the question is, well, what is it? Second, second, it then becomes a wisdom prudence issue. Is it a sin issue? If the answer is no, then it becomes a wisdom prudence issue. Now, if it is a sin issue, okay, well, then we got to go to the Word and see what does God's Word actually have to say, and then we got to wrestle with the text and then figure out how to apply it. And, and on and on. And if it is a sin issue, then we need to ask them to repent based on the teaching of God's word. But if it isn't, it's just simply a wisdom prudence issue. And you guys might know it as I, as I literally was walking through this situation, like how would I feel if the guys wanted to paint the building pink? Um, my temptation still though is to react and respond as if it is a sin issue. It is impossible to be a Christian and love God and do that. Then you got to think, really? Really? Am I going to go down that route? It is really impossible. It's not within the realm of possibility under humanity, given different personalities and different, given people's convictions and given people's desires that, that it would be, it is impossible to follow Jesus faithfully and still do that. Well, friends, if you find yourself still responding in that way, ask yourself, how is it possible that one could think it is wise to do that particular thing, to go in that direction? You want to seek to be empathetic, right? If there is a disagreement within the church, you want to seek to be empathetic, right? You want to be charitable. You want to be loving and think about, okay, in the realm of possibility, under this big grand earth where there's billions and billions of people, is it within the realm of possibility of wisdom that that is a good thing to do in that person's mind? In that person's mind. What are their reasons for why that person thinks that it is wise? You want to try to be empathetic. That is what we all should be aiming to do. And as we put forward our case, right, as we're making our case, we're having regular discussion. We want to make sure that, the, that we give the best arguments from the implications of Scripture, as well as from general reason, as well as from considering our context. And then we're simply just going to move forward. 
But I don't need to get up in arms with supposed righteous indignation to somebody who disagrees over a non-sin issue. In fact, for me to respond in such a way is actually, believe it or not, it is actually to be a bully. It's actually to be a bully, right? Because that's not an issue of righteousness versus unrighteousness. It's not an issue of faithfulness to Jesus versus unfaithfulness to Jesus. It is a wisdom-prudence issue. Third thing that we can do, since we have decided that it's not a sin issue but a wisdom issue, what can we do to continue moving forward in Christian love and Christian unity even though we disagree? We already said that, you know, we can try and seek to be empathetic, try and understand the other person's reasoning with charity and love. But here's what we can do further. We can lean into everything that we agree on. Isn't that encouraging? We can lean into the fact that, hey, we still believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man. We still believe in the gospel of grace. We still believe that one is saved not by grace through, not by works, but by grace through faith in Christ's work alone. We still agree on our desire to aim and get the gospel out to our neighbors and friends so that they would taste the goodness of the Lord. We still agree that love and unity are fragile. And so we ought to labor with great energy to love one another. There's so much to have fellowship in, and so we can therefore labor side by side, unified in all of the major things, working towards the same goal of making Christ's name known to the world. And we do so even by laying down our preferences for the good of the body. Love and unity will not be retained if we simply assume the worst of each other. It lacks Christian love. Instead of that, we want to give grace. We want to think the best of each other. We want to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Love, again, is a very fragile thing. And it is only the humble, sacrificial love of Jesus that can cover over all of those potential cracks and fissures that might threaten a church. As Peter later says in 1 Peter 4, 8, he says, love, he's thinking Christian love, having received the forgiveness of sin and acknowledged and known and embraced the love of Jesus, only that love can cover a multitude of sins. Even. It can even cover over a little bit of weirdness and a a few quirks here. Because if we all know ourselves well enough, we're all a little weird and we're all a little quirky. So thank God for the love of Christ. This is how we can put away some of these sins listed here and the attitudes actually that give birth to to these sins. It is by looking to Jesus Christ, looking to God in Christ who has covered the gaps in Jesus. Christ has crossed a real divide in order to save us. That is how much he loves us. That is how humble his love is. That is how he lays down his preferences of the glories of heaven and steps off his divine throne in order to rescue sinners. That is Christ, our example, the definition of Christ-like love. You see the humility of Christ. It, is, it was sinners that He came to save. His own who had rebelled against Him. And yet, He moved towards us for all of our benefit. Great benefit. If you know, let's say, a little relational tiff with your loved one who's in the bed and maybe they've done something or maybe I did something and you know that you don't want to turn around. You don't want to face that person because, oh, this person doesn't put away their socks every single night, which is what I don't do. And, uh, and you know this person is doing this thing over and over and over again. It's not even a sin issue. You're just irritated. How many of us would be like, babe, I just love you. And no matter what you do, I'm here to work it out. I'm going to die sacrificially for you. No matter if you leave your socks out every single day of the night for the rest of our lives, I'm for you. How many of us would do that? And that's over a silly little thing like socks. Think about the love of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that sinners are hostile to God, born in sin. We actually sin against Him. The Bible says that God created us to be in a relationship with Him, perfect in love, no sin, but yet we sinned against Him. We would not want to live under His rule and His reign and His love. Instead, we want to do what we want to do. And that, friends, by definition, is sin. Casting off God to go and do what we want. And the Bible says that we all have earned for ourselves just condemnation because we have rejected the king. As one says, we have dethroned God, the de of God, all on account of our own pride. 
We'd rather live according to the way that we wanted to live. Now, now God in all of His righteousness had every right to just uh, judge us immediately, right there, right then. But what does He do? He had already a plan that was hatched to save and move towards His rebels who were taking up arms against Him. He Himself moves forward and says, I am for you if you would repent of your sins and believe. And in His great love, the Bible says, Great compassion and mercy, He sends His eternal Son, Christ, to take on flesh, even though where we had not lived according to His righteous laws, Christ lives righteously. Even though we had deserved judgment and death to bear the weight of the sins and the wrath of God upon ourselves, He sends Christ to do that for us. And on the cross, He dies bearing the weight of sin the wrath that his people deserve, so that what? So that we would taste the goodness of God in forgiveness of sins. Reconciliation with God, adoption into his family where we know him as father, loving father, where we begin to have new desires for him because of his spirit. And so we are reconciled. We are being brought, we are made at one. That's what atonement means, at one meant. Being brought together at one with Christ the Holy Amazing. This is all by God's grace where we can know God now and be saved from our sin and have this fabulous, fantastic hope of an eternal inheritance that is found in Jesus Christ. And so knowing that love for ourselves, Christ moving towards us, then we are enabled. We have an example as well to love in those same ways, whether we are putting away selfishness, self-advancement that leads to deceit and hypocrisy, whether we are seeking unity in wisdom. We have an example and we are empowered to love. Thinking about how we display God's character, it's fascinating and really exciting that the more we act in love towards our brothers and sisters, covering, covering over all the fissures of uh, potential fissures of disunity with Christ's love, the more others begin to see what truly binds us. They, they begin to know again for themselves as they themselves maybe caused that fissure. Or we who have caused the fissure, we ask for forgiveness and so they share the love of Christ with us the more evidence people begin to see that, yeah, these people are bound together by this Jesus. That is phenomenal. Whoa, tell me more about this Jesus. Or they say, thank you for showing me more about your Jesus. You see, friends, how Christ Jesus is the foundation for all of this. Christian morality finds its basis in Christ, who is the climax of God's love for us in salvation. Again, he is the definition of God's love. He is the great example of love, and He is the very one who empowers us to love based on His Spirit. That's why in the flow of our passage, we have these ethical commands to first put off evil, right? You see that there very clearly. But then it's interesting, right? You see, you see what He says next. This is the main thrust of this section, these three verses here. We are called then to long for the Word. That's really fascinating, right? We have these moral commands, or, or basically these commands, uh, it's really a participle. If, you're, if you love grammar, now you know that it's a participle when he says, uh, put away those things. But the main thrust here, the imperative, is actually to long for the pure spiritual milk, which is the word of Jesus. And you might think, whoa, I don't get this here. He's talking about things we should put off. And then we go and desire the word, the Bible, which almost feels very static, right? It's not is this like we go and desire a book? Like, I don't really get this. Or do we go to this book because we seek morality and that's where morality is found in these dry human-made words or so people think. But let's continue here. The second point, a loving church longs for the Word of God. A loving church longs for the Word of God. Point number one was we long to put away sin. Now we long for the Word of God. Look at there, verse two. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The grammar is clear. What do we have here? We have a command like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. We got the purpose. Why should they long? It is that by it, that is the pure spiritual milk or the word, you may grow up into salvation. And then you have the motivation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter tells Christians there to long for the pure spiritual milk. This is the command. It is the word of God. If you look there in the previous section, 22 to 25, you see there verse 23. 
of chapter 1. Go ahead and look there. The living and abiding Word of God. That's what he's talking about. That gives us the new birth. Gives us life spiritually. Verse 25. The Word of the Lord abides forever. And this Word is the good news or the gospel that was preached to you. Note that the Word is the thing that gave life and the Word is the thing that continues to sustain us as we feed on it. Just as milk is foundational for a baby's life, so the Word is foundational for the Christian's life. Peter here, he uses this metaphor. If you're familiar with your Bibles, you know that this metaphor comes up elsewhere. Peter here actually uses this metaphor differently than Paul and other authors in Scripture do. Paul and others use the metaphor of milk as something that the Christian starts off with, right? And then what they're supposed to do is this was a move on from it and go on to something like meat. So in those contexts, many of them, he's like re, uh, rebuking the church because they're stuck in elementary things. Uh, and then they're supposed to move on. But that's not the way Peter used the word in this phrase here. He's simply saying, look, as newborn babies live and are sustained by milk, Christians, you guys do the same with God's word. And so we are to long for it. The pure or untainted milk. You can think of false teachers who teach very tainted doctrine like name it and claim it. God just wants you to be rich. Manifest, you know, your reality, all the things you want. Be, be little gods, you know, speaking things into existence like money and health. That is a false gospel. That is very untainted milk. And then you got spiritual milk. So it's supposed to be pure. It is pure and it is untainted. It's, uh, it's all, all of it is healthy and nourishing. You could also translate this word spiritual as reasonable or rational. Reasonable or rational. So basically, this, this word of God is the thing that we as Christians are to live on and be sustained by. And that is how we grow up into salvation. Not earn salvation, but mature in salvation now as we have it by grace and as we long for it and enter into it into the future. He tells us to long for it. Okay, Christian, so if you know the sting of suffering for the faith, right? That's what was going on here. We often have a million things on your mind. Some of you guys come to church suffering with difficulty. You got a million things on your mind. You might be tempted to think, well, how am I going to care for my family if I lose my job? How am I going to pay for the bills? Worse yet, how am I going to lose my life? And now you're telling me to make sure you read the Bible? There's so many things on our minds right now that we are concerned about. Frankly, to some Christians, this encouragement might sound something of a chore. But it is so only if you think that the Christian faith is a bunch of to-dos where Christians are just supposed to be good and be moral with the ultimate goal of being religious, just going through the motions, just something we do as a cultural people here. But if you are visiting, know that that is not what Christianity is. Sure, I get it. We might be tempted to treat it that way, but that is not what it is most foundationally. Most foundationally, being a Christian means that we know who God is, our very creator. We can, in fact, know him. We know Jesus, and we know him more through his word. It's like, imagine um, for myself, right? I have a little, I have a box of letters that I have kept from friends and loved ones. And these letters go into this box, of course. And on occasion, I have been known to take them out and read them. Because it reminds me of my friendship with this person back then. I got some from Melanie. When I read those, it, it takes me back to maybe the early days of our relationship. And something in me gets sparked up. I, I remember of the ways in which I had known her then and the ways in which I had grown to know her now. And those things are close to my heart. I keep them and I read them. Maybe you do the same with emails or letters and things like this. The same thing goes with God. God himself, Christians actually believe, if you're visiting with us again, Christians actually believe, this church actually believes that God revealed himself in the word of God and he used human authors to convey his truth to us. Praise the Lord. He also revealed to us, revealed to us himself in Christ. And the word, all of the word just testifies to Jesus Christ who can in fact be known. And this is what we do here. We seek to know again. We seek to open it again. And remember, how is it that God came to know us? How is it that I came to know God? And how can I know him more and more and more through the word of God? That's why we read it. That's why some of us memorize it. That's why some of us meditate on the word of God. It is definitely not dry morals, human made. It is God given through which we come to know our Creator 
and know the way of salvation and know all of the benefits of salvation in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Imagine yourself here. Picture yourself. This is to illustrate the point here. Picture yourself getting a full-time job, thinking about things we read, right? Imagine yourself getting a full-time job and your employer hands you a stack of papers explaining all of the health benefits you get. That's pretty exciting. If you are in desperate need of medical care, what kind of person would say, why would I bother looking at my policy and my coverage? I don't need to talk to anybody about it. Why do I need to get on the phone and talk to this person, that person, right? What would we think about this person who is in desperate need of medical care? Reading your policy, having somebody explain it to you will inform you of all of the benefits you have. It'll actually help you understand what has been provided for you It'll help you get what you need. It'll help you use what you have. And to a certain degree, depending on your medical insurance, you might get a degree of comfort and security and a way forward in difficulty. Friends, so it is, and so much more in an infinite sense, with the Word of God. We're not talking about God's fallen, or humanity's fallenness, or health insurance fallenness. We're talking about God who never fails, and He conveys all of these blessings, all of the benefits through the Word of God. And so reading the Word here, it roots our hearts in the benefits of what it looks like to live underneath the Lord as those who have received His grace in Jesus. Friends, God has in fact spoken to us. He has recorded His acts in history that speak of His faithfulness. We have His words of instruction. He has given us a law that reveals His righteousness. He has given us promises. Those He has already fulfilled and those we know He will fulfill because He is good and never fails. Friends, you realize that in the Word, the pure spiritual milk, these are words of comfort and love and through them we come to know God and His character. And for Christians here, we are reminded, these Christians were reminded as well, that He is for us. And we encourage, therefore, to persevere in Him, even putting away all these sins that displease Him as we, per, as we pursue Him. So when Peter tell, calls Christians here to long for the Word, he's not telling us to pursue dry morality, dry, meaningless religiosity. He's calling us and inviting us to know more about who He is as a Savior who has gone to the death for his people so that people will be saved. Peter himself knows this and he highlights it. Did you notice there in verse 3? Look there in verse 3 how he motivates us to long for the pure spiritual milk. You got the command. Let's just review, right? We got the command, long for the pure spiritual milk. We got the purpose that we might grow up into salvation, that we might reach it by God's grace, by perseverance, that we might hope in it all the more. That's what it means to grow up into salvation. Then we got the motivation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love that language. I love that language for all sorts of different reasons. You guys know that I like steak. I got 16 pounds of dry aged ribeye in my refrigerator right now, and I know what it tastes like. And so I'm longing for the day when we crack it open. And I get to use my flamethrower once again and cook it up. I long for it. I know I'm anticipating it. It is ready. It's getting ready for us to eat it. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He wants us, right? We we know. He's not saying whether or not you have. It's not a rebuke. He knows that we have, and so he's trying to cultivate us. A remembrance, a tasteful remembrance of what it's like to know the salvation of our good and gracious God. This here, tasted that the Lord is good. It's straight out of Psalm 34. It's straight out of Psalm 34, which is picked up and continued in the next section of 1 Peter, which we're going to look at next week. Listen to these verses, Psalm 34, 8 and 9. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, not in himself, not in the world, but, world, but in God. This is King David, too, who took refuge in God in trouble. Psalm 34, the setting there is all about trouble, having spears thrown in his head multiple times, having his own people against him. And yet he knows, I have tasted that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, even with spears being launched at my head. You know how God's goodness is manifested? Listen. Psalm 34, verse 17, David says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. So to these Christians and to us, Peter is calling them to trust in God. 
He has delivered them already from the chains of sin, death, and Satan. And He will deliver them from society's persecution, no matter how bad. This is a call, friends, to feast on the dining table, at the dining table of God's goodness and faithfulness, His power and sovereignty, all of it wielded for you, Christian. The exercise of sovereignty in sending His Son to take on flesh. The exercise of power and dominion as He defeated sin, death, and Satan all on the cross and three days later in the resurrection for you. And His steadfast love always standing at His place, interceding before us now, before the Father, into eternity for you. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Peter says, now return to eat again. Friends, do you believe that the Lord is faithful to deliver His people? You realize that for anyone to crave the Word, you have to have tasted, obviously, that the Lord is good or superior or better than anything else. Do you believe that the Lord's fountain is of faithfulness is good? Or is it a little bitter? Because if it is a little bitter, I can understand why we might be a little hesitant to drink from that fountain. And frankly, you know the reason why many judge God to not be good in their wrong judgment. It's because they assess His faithfulness on whether He fulfills their wants as opposed to whether He has fulfilled His own desires and promises to His people. Lord, I want to get out of the suffering. I want a different job. I want out of the suffering and I want to get into the school. I want out of the suffering and I want my loved ones to live. Friends, these are all things God could do. But regardless of what we may want, God's goodness is seen in His faithfulness to His own promises. He will, in fact, deliver all of us from suffering, the worst suffering possible, as we go into the grave. He will do that. But it is in His good timing. It's not immediate. But it is in, our, in His good timing. He will fulfill His promises. And so we do not do well to judge His goodness and faithfulness based on whether He fulfills our desires in our timing. That would just be bizarre. That frankly would just be bizarre. I mean, imagine the employee who works for the most amazing boss you could ever imagine who says, look, every year I'm going to give you an awesome bonus, $100,000. And imagine every single year this boss is faithful to, to his word. If we worked for this boss, we would all think, dude, this guy is awesome, phenomenal. But how would you respond if your coworker one year comes to you and says, look, dude, this boss is horrible. He is not good. He is not faithful. I know we get $100,000 a year, but you know what he did last week? I asked him for a million dollars and he didn't give it to me. He only gave me $100,000. Why would we judge God to not be good based on whether he chooses to fulfill every single one of our desires? That frankly is the stuff of fairy tales and genies. That is also a silly example along with my hot pink house example. But don't we oftentimes judge God's goodness based on whether or not He meets our preferences? When, in reality, His goodness has been so clearly displayed, ultimately displayed in providing us the greatest blessing of all that is reconciliation with Him through Christ in fulfilling all of His promises down into the past and into eternity. Friends, in Scripture, we see that God is, in fact, good and always faithful to His promises. And the fact that we live, frankly, in a fallen and sinful world where there is suffering, even those things will not stop Him. Just think about how we see God's goodness in Scripture. When He created people, when His created people committed treason against them, well, again, what does He do? We saw earlier He moves by His own initiative to pardon them. In relational language, when sinners betray Him, when they commit adultery against Him by worshiping or exalting other things above Him, He still pursues them and makes a covenant with them. He promises them, I will deliver you nevertheless, all according to His steadfast love and mercy. And then when sinners still refuse to keep their covenant promises, what does He do? He doesn't file for divorce, but He reaffirms His promises to them. And of course He would, because He is a God who keeps His promises. 
Think about Israel in the Old Testament. They continued sinning against God. They kept on abandoning Him. Ezekiel chapter 16, which I read with some guys yesterday, he describes it in this very graphic language. He calls Israel a whore. And Israel continued whoring themselves out to other nations, trusting in them and their gods. But what does he say he will do? In Ezekiel chapter 16, he says, Nevertheless, I will atone for your sins according to my covenant promises. And though the people continued to to wander away from him, he then would change their hearts. He would give them a new heart and a new spirit that desires him. These are in the prophecies of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. And just as he promised, so he fulfilled these things in Christ. And for those of you who are Christians, we have a spirit and we begin to desire Christian things. We begin to desire God and to honor him. In the New Testament, we see God faithfully fulfilling His promises to save in Jesus Christ the Messiah. And so again, He sends Christ to atone for our sins, even though He was the innocent one. He was crushed for our sins, pierced for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities, and He bore the punishment that we ourselves deserved. And in conquering sin, death and Satan, three days later, He gets up from the grave. Christian, if you have been born again, you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know Jesus as He has made Himself known to you all by His grace. He has opened your eyes and your heart that you might behold the beauties of the King. You know His forgiveness of sins by God's grace. You know adoption into His family. You know new life and renewal by the Spirit where we have again new desires. And so we are to be a people having tasted that the Lord is good. We are to be a people who long again to taste over and over and over again that God has given us Christ and He is good. And certainly, if He has given us Christ, the greatest thing, surely He will give us all things, even resurrection from the dead. When we consider all that He has promised, all that He has fulfilled, the pardon that He doles out, the blessings that He lavishes, the hope that He secures, how would we not conclude that the Lord is good? Again, non-Christian, if you're visiting with us, you too, friends, can taste the goodness of the Lord. Don't think we Christians come to church for dry morality. Think we come again to taste the Lord's goodness. And He holds out His goodness, forgiveness, reconciliation with Him to everybody if they would repent of their sins and believe on Him. He promises you will be saved. As we wrap up and move towards a conclusion, let's, let's think a little bit about application here as we finish up. Do you long for Him through His Word? Longing, by the way, ardent desire. There's a fire. Do you long for God through His Word? We could apply this in all sorts of different ways, but I want to focus on the fact that it is easier to seek the Lord when you have savored His goodness. It is easier to seek the Lord when you have savored His goodness. I hope that is plain. And the way you come to savor His goodness is by seeking to know more of His goodness in the gospel. This here is an encouragement to come study the Bible, to read and study the Bible daily. So let's just get ultra practical, friends, here. Do you have a plan? If not, when it comes to reading the Bible, let me encourage you to start with a passage that was just preached. So tomorrow when you wake up in the morning and you want to seek after God, you want to have your devotions, as many people call them, start with reading the passage that was just preached. So tomorrow you can read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. If you want to read more, great, read more. But focus on, let's say, for example, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 to 3. And then when you get the email uh, telling us what passage is going to be preached on next, you can change and start studying that as you prepare your hearts to study the Word of God. Next week, we're just going to continue with this passage, and we're going to go all the way to verse 10. So that's something that you guys can actively be studying and then also praying through. Families, let me land particularly on husbands and fathers in particularly, in particular. Let me encourage you to read the passage with your families. And it doesn't need to be long. I know some of us guys were like, yeah, we're going to do this. It needs to be long. We're going to get out all the 20 commentators, commentaries, and it needs to be a sermon to the family. Let me encourage you to not think that. That I think can actually overwhelm us. Don't go for length. It's better to go for regularity and brevity if that gets you in the word more. So just start with a verse. Just start with a verse. Pick one after you read it and then read it to, the, to your families. And then discuss about how you see the goodness of God and how God ought to be praised and what it means for your life. 
kids, by God's grace, will grow up knowing mom and dad sure loves this Jesus guy and his word. Maybe I should read about him myself. Maybe I should explore this thing too because clearly they, t- they seem to have tasted that the Lord is good. I want to as well. Seeking the Lord comes easier when you have savored His goodness. And in order to savor His goodness, we need to go back to the Gospel over and over and over again as all of Scripture points to the Gospel. If you are a born-again Christian, you have tasted that the Lord is good. And it is encouraging to know that God intends this taste would accompany us all the days of our lives. A loving church is a longing church, a church that longs to put away sin, and a church that longs for God's Word. And all of it really is fueled by a knowledge of our loving Savior. We know who He is, and so we want to be like Him. We are transformed to be more like Him. How do we know the Savior? We know Him through the Word of God. He is our King. And as a church, we are His embassy, earthly embassy, as we represent His heavenly kingdom. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would cultivate in us a stronger desire for your word. Grant us by your grace a longing for your wisdom, for more of you, for knowing you, to be found in you, that we might throw ourselves into the word of God. Help us even now reflect on all the things we could long for and sinfully long for and help us, Lord, divert our attention and our hearts to you as we know that you are all that we have and certainly all that we need. We pray, Lord, that for us, we would be known for being a holy church, not a pharisaical pride church that is holy so that we might lord it over others or feel good about ourselves, but that we might be holy because you are beautiful and you are working in us your very own character. We pray that in doing so, the world would see us, though we are not perfect, we would see, that they would see us as being changed and that they would be curious and simply ask us, why is it that we do what we do? Lord, we pray that you would be rooting our hearts in the gospel so that you would give us strength and that we would know your grace as we seek to live out our lives as Christians. Help us long for the Word that we might know You more. Help us taste again that You, in fact, are good. In Your name we pray. Amen.